June's Journey is a fascinating hidden object mystery gaming app where you'll play as June Parker, tasked with a daunting obligation, solve your sister's murder. Set in the 1920s, the era of glitz and glam, this family mystery is one for the ages. Everyone's a suspect until your investigation determines otherwise. The clues are all around you, hidden within tricky twists and turns. You'll collect detailed information about each character in your photo album where you'll comb over every detail. You can even join a detective's club to chat and play with others or against them in the detective's league. With hundreds of puzzles to solve, you should probably get started today. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. We all have busy lives these days, and we don't want to waste a day recovering after a night out. That's why Zbiotics is the answer we've all been looking for. Their probiotic was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Pre-alcohol produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. This is a proactive solution that wards off feeling miserable the next day instead of a reactive approach like drinking electrolytes or eating greasy food. Enhance your mornings with Zbiotics. Go to zbiotics.com/cbs to get 15% off your first order when you use code CBS at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with a 100% money back guarantee. So, if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember to head to zbiotics.com/cbs and use the code CBS at checkout for 15% off. Thank you Zbiotics for sponsoring this episode and our good times. I'm Margaret Brennan in Washington, and this week on Face the Nation, change is coming to Washington. But as both parties try to move past the chaos of campaigns 20 and 22, a certain former president is not on board with that. It was a seismic but not surprising announcement. The hours come for a new generation to lead the Democratic caucus. It's a changing of the guard as Democrats move to the minority. That new generation is younger, more diverse, and untested when it comes to facing a potential barrage of Republican-led investigations. They just give you one gavel with the power and the power of subpoena as well, and we're going to use it. But the Republican Party will have to deal with the fallout from Attorney General Merrick Garland's decision to name an outside counsel to oversee investigations of former President Trump. Appointing a special counsel at this time is the right thing to do. The extraordinary circumstances presented here We'll talk with the former Trump Deputy Attorney General, Rod Rosenstein, as well as House Judiciary Committee Democrat, Zoe Lofgren. Plus, the former Vice President opens up to us about January 6th and the big issue dividing him and the former President. The 2020 election was not stolen. Finally, we'll take a look at turmoil in the tech world as Twitter teeters and crypto crashes. Tech watchers Kara Swisher and Scott Galloway will join us for analysis. It's all just ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. There is some breaking news overnight from Colorado as we have learned that five people are dead and at least 18 others have been injured in a mass shooting at Club Q, an LGBTQ nightclub in Colorado Springs. Now, police say they do have the alleged shooter in custody and the FBI is assisting with the investigation. We begin this morning with former Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein. He appointed Robert Mueller as special counsel for the investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 election and to determine if there were links between that country and former President Trump's campaign. And he joins us in studio. It is good to have you here in an extraordinary week. Good morning. Glad to be here. I want to get right to it. Um, Due to the former president launching his campaign, the current president may also run for president. The attorney general said it is absolutely necessary to have a special counsel oversee this investigation into the classified documents found at Mar-a-Lago and what happened with trying to change the outcome of the 2020 election. 
If you were in the old role you once had, would you have appointed a special counsel? You know, it's easy to second guess from outside the department. I don't know exactly what Merrick Garland knows, what information was available to him. Um, he didn't say that he was required to appoint the special counsel. He said that he thought it was the right thing to do. Uh, I believed under the circumstances that I faced that the appointment of Robert Mueller was the right thing to do with regard to the Russia investigation. Uh, but I think in this case, Merrick Garland clearly made a discretionary decision. The department had been handling this itself for two years, could have continued to handle it itself, but uh, he believed uh, that this would help to promote public confidence. I think it remains to be seen whether that's the case. So you wouldn't have done this yourself? As I said, it's, it's easy to second guess from outside. I think uh, you know, my inclination, given that the investigation has been going on for some time and given the stage uh, which they've reached, uh, is that I probably would not have, but I just can't tell from the outside. So uh, from where you sit, does the appointment of a special counsel indicate at least a willingness um, on Merrick Garland's part to go ahead with a prosecution, or is that overreading the decision? Uh, I think what it indicates is that, uh, you know, despite the fact the department has been at this for some time, almost two years on the January 6th investigation, close to a year in the Mar-a-Lago investigation, uh, that they still believe that they have a viable potential case. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean they made a decision to go forward, uh, but it certainly is an indication they believe it's a possibility. Now, one case that's been going on longer, uh, the investigation into Hunter Biden, which um, CBS has learned the FBI has gathered sufficient evidence to charge him uh, with tax and gun-related crimes. And that is before the U.S. attorney in Delaware, David Weiss. I believe you know him since he was a Trump appointee. Can he independently oversee this, or do we need another special counsel? Well, yeah, this investigation, as you said, has been going on for a very long time, which is not good for anybody. Uh, you know, it promotes conspiracy theories and suspicions. So my hope is the department will make a decision in the near future about whether to go forward. Uh, and hopefully that decision will be accepted by the public. Um, I do believe that uh, the U.S. attorney in Delaware you know, has the right experience to make that decision. So mm -hmm. uh, I think we can be confident that he'll make the right decision in that case. Okay. So not in that case. But let me ask you about the content of what is being scrutinized here with the former president. I know when you were U.S. attorney in Maryland, you dealt with individuals who took classified material, sometimes top secret SCI level clearances, and kept it at home. And you prosecuted them to the full extent of the law. Why should the president be any different? Well, you're right. We did have uh, a lot of uh, federal agencies in Maryland, and so we had a number of cases that came up during my 12 years as U.S. attorney, uh, both under President Obama and President Bush. Uh, and we prosecuted those cases because we believe the facts justified it. Now, if the facts justify prosecution of President Trump, I think the department will make that decision. Uh, but we just don't know from the outside. You know, they're extenuating circumstances when it's the president, when there are a lot of staffers and lawyers involved. Uh, and so I think we have to wait to see how that all shakes out. Former Attorney General Barr uh, sat with PBS. Um, and this was right before Merrick Garland's announcement. But he said that to indict, the Justice Department needs to show Mr. Trump was consciously involved. Let's hear what he had to say. I personally think that they probably have the basis for legitimately indicting the president. I don't know. I'm speculating. speculating yeah. But but given what's gone on, I think they probably have the evidence that would check the box. They have the case. Do you agree? Well, I, I don't know. I think the Attorney General Barr that is you know, mentioned later in that interview that he was speculating. Uh, and I think it's, you know, there, there are multiple levels of issues that the department needs to consider, Margaret. Number one is, you know, is the evidence sufficient to obtain and sustain a conviction? Number two is, is it an appropriate use of federal resources to bring that case? And a case against a former president obviously would be extraordinary, would raise uh, unique concerns. And so I would hope that Mayor Garland and his team uh, would be very careful about scrutinizing that evidence, not just checking the box, but making sure that they're prepared to stand behind the decision that they make. So when you say sustain a conviction, what do you mean by that? Does that mean looking at the courts that are likely to prosecute? I mean, where would you prosecute this case, Florida or Washington, D.C.? Well, it means ensuring that, number one, you'll get past a jury, that is, being able to persuade 12 random citizens that your case proves the defendant's guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, and number two, that it'll be sustained or upheld on appeal. You know, the department sometimes brings cases in which they use novel theories mm -hmm. uh, that prevail in district court but are overruled on appeal. Uh, if they were to bring a case against the former president, you'd want to make sure they had a, a lock-solid case and they were confident both of conviction and of prevailing on any appeal. And that there wouldn't be some national security implication such as political violence? 
Well, you know, that's, uh, that's a difficult issue, Margaret, as to whether or not the attorney general should consider the, the potential for public unrest if they were to bring a case against the president. It has to be considered. I, I think it highlights the importance of the department ensuring that they have a solid case. Uh, that is, that they're going to uh, you know, win a conviction and they're going to be able to sustain an appeal. The, the, the uh, circumstances, the stakes are higher mm -hmm. than in an ordinary case. Uh, you need to make sure if you bring that case that you can persuade people that is meritorious and that you deserve to win. Well, that gets at the fundamentals of distrust of institution where we are these days. But uh, the former president has already said he's not going to comply with mm -hmm. any investigations. He said that uh, on Friday. So what does this mean for the timeline? Are we running right into the 2024 presidential campaign. I'm concerned about uh, about the timing. Obviously, the the new special counsel, Jack Smith, needs to get up to speed in the case. He's not even in the U.S., so he needs to come back and get engaged uh, uh, and supervise his team. He may need to bring in additional uh, team members, people he trusts to review the circumstances. Uh, and then there are other potential delays as well. You know, one of the downsides of appointing a special counsel is the possibility of litigation over the validity of the appointment mm -hmm. of the special counsel. Now, that has always been upheld by the courts, but litigation can impose additional delays. So I think there's a, a fair chance that this is going to drag in well into the campaign season. And then the question of whether the candidate wins or not. Um, Rod Rosenstein, thank you for your insight uh, and for joining us today. Thank you. Before the appointment of a special counsel was announced last week, we spoke with former Vice President Mike Pence about his new book, So Help Me God. In our wide-ranging conversation, Mr. Pence details extensively his story up to and including the January 6th attack. The president's words and actions in and around January 6th were reckless. Uh, the tweet that he issued the day that I uh, was in the loading dock before the, below the United States Senate um, endangered my family and endangered people that were in the Capitol um, and was indefensible. Why did it take you two years to talk about your anger? Weren't you incandescent with rage that your family was put at risk like that? Margaret, I was angry that day and many days since. But on January 6th, I have to tell you that I had to put that aside. The president had decided to be a part of the problem. I was determined to be a part of the solution, to work with leaders in Congress, leaders at the Pentagon, leaders in law enforcement, to do our part to finish our work under the Constitution. You were calling and trying to get the National Guard to come in and restore order. Did you feel you had to do that because the commander-in-chief was derelict in his duties? Margaret, I didn't know what the president was doing at the time. I wasn't at the White House. Uh, I had no contact with the president or the White House that day. Um, but when I spoke to the congressional leaders in our first conference call, uh, they informed me that they were getting mixed messages from security personnel. And I asked them if, uh, they wanted me to get involved, and they did. Do you think President Trump needs to be held responsible in his events, in the events that led to January 6th and the violence of that day? Well, I think everyone that perpetrated the violence at the Capitol needs to be held to the strictest account. Well, what about of those who fed it? What about those who gave it oxygen, the lie oxygen to mislead people? I'm confident that the American people will hold all those responsible at the end of the day, and history will be their judge. You know, in, in, in my book, I, what I tried to do is uh, share a candid story about uh, the evolution of that controversy. The president and I had the president came to you at least five times. You lay it out in detail leading up to January 6th, and it's almost like you couldn't believe this because you kept telling him over and over, this is not legal, this is not constitutional. Did. Do you Many look back did. and say, I wasn't forceful enough? And what could you have done differently? Well, I, I did tell the president many times uh, that after he exhausted every legal challenge that uh, the campaign had every right to pursue, uh, that he should simply accept the results. The president was hearing from a cadre of attorneys who, frankly, should never have been left on the White House grounds, let alone in the Oval Office, um, telling him what, as the Bible says, his itching ears wanted to hear. 
my hope was that in, in, at the end of the day, he would come around. I remember on the night of January 4th, we had a meeting uh, with the president and part of that legal team in the Oval Office. The president left on the helicopter. Um, there were no harsh words between us, but he was continuing to make his case and I was continuing to make my position clear. But at his rally in Georgia, which I watched on television, the president actually mm -hmm. opened the rally by speaking about me. I hope that our great vice president, our great vice president comes through for us. He's a great guy. Of course, if he doesn't come through, I won't like him quite as much. But then he paused and he said to the crowd, no, no, one thing you know about Mike Pence is he always plays it straight. And then he called you the next day. And I remember in that moment thinking he might be coming around. But he wasn't. My continued hope was that at the end of the day, he would recognize what our duty was uh, on that day as but the presiding officer under the Constitution to oversee the count of the electoral vote of an election that we lost. But, um, but it was not to be. Will you answer questions about that day before Congress? Congress has no right to my testimony. We have a separation of powers under the Constitution of the United States. Um, and I believe it would establish a terrible precedent uh, for the Congress to summon a vice president of the United States to speak about deliberations that took place uh, at the White House. So and, you're, uh, you're closing the door on that entirely? Um, I'm closing the door on that. And, uh, but I must say again that the partisan nature of the January 6th committee uh, has been a disappointment to me. The lawyers and the chief of staff to the president at the time, the Mark Meadows, who let those lawyers, you said, had no business on the White House grounds. You think no consequence, only prosecute the people who actually physically went to the Capitol? There are those that are uh, speaking in defense of people that rioted at the Capitol and um, created the conditions where lives were lost. Uh, but I believe everyone that was rioting in the Capitol that day and perpetrating violence needs to be held to the strictest account of the law. But I do believe that uh, at, at the end of the day, uh, the American people will hold accountable of those that, uh, that permitted uh, the circumstances around which January 6th uh, was able to, to, to flourish into violence that day. You also think um, the FBI executing a search warrant to take classified material from the former president's home was not the way the Justice Department should have handled it. But to be clear, were you ever personally concerned about Mr. Trump's handling of classified information? I don't recall ever being concerned about the president or anyone in our administration's handling of classified information, I, at least among the senior staff, of which I had regular contact. Um, but if he had, he would be prosecuted, you would think. Well, let me say, you know, no one is above the law. But as someone that served on the Judiciary Committee for more than 10 years, having oversight over the Justice Department, I just think there were many better ways uh, to obtain those classified materials from Mar-a-Lago than to execute a search warrant against a former president of the United States of America, something that had never happened in American history, Margaret. And never been prosecuted. Do you think that that well, should happen? My, my hope is that the Justice Department will think very carefully about next steps. You know, I mean, this is a very divided time in the life of our nation. I think our nation needs to heal. But the idea of executing a search warrant against a former president of the United States um, sent the wrong message to the American people and frankly sent the wrong message to the wider world that looks at the United States of America as the standard. And that was my disappointment in the decision to execute a search warrant. And there will be more of our conversation with the former vice president just ahead. But we turn now to California Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren. She serves on the Judiciary Committee and the Select Committee investigating January 6th. Good morning to you, Congresswoman. Um, I want to get straight to it. Does the refusal of the vice president and the former president to comply with your investigation in any way impede the impact or outcome? Well, we wish they had come in. Uh, certainly other presidents have come in when asked by the Congress, including uh, Gerald Ford, um, uh, 
Teddy Roosevelt, many others. Uh, it is almost Thanksgiving and the committee uh, turns into a pumpkin at the end of December. Uh, so we don't have time to litigate this, but I think they've cheated history uh, and uh, they should have done otherwise. We, on the other hand, have received substantial information from other sources and we're in the process of, as I'm sure you know, writing our report now. And you're continuing to gather information, as I understand it, um, speaking to two Secret Service officials recently. Um, what more do you need, and are you still sharing that information with the Justice Department? Well, we're not sharing information with the Justice Department. Uh, we're doing our own investigation. However, we anticipate, uh, when our report is released, to release all of the evidence that we have assembled so the public can see it, including the Department of Justice. Okay. But you have, I understand the committee has released documents to the Department of Justice. Is that not the case? Well, we're not, we're, no, we're, we're, we're doing our own investigation. Right. And within a month, they, the public will have everything that we've found, all the evidence um, for good or ill. And uh, I think we've, as we've shown in our hearings, yeah. made a compelling uh presentation that the former president was at the center of the effort to overturn uh, a duly elected election, uh, assembled the mob, sent it over to Congress to try and interfere with the peaceful transfer of power. It's pretty shocking. Well, as we know, the Justice Department has its own investigation, and that's what led us to the attorney general making news just a few days ago with the special counsel to take up uh, the events surrounding January 6th. Um, but what does putting this in the hands of a special counsel uh, accomplish here? Do you think it um, actually removes politics or does it still just keep it there since the attorney general will still have oversight of the special counsel? Well, I think from what the attorney general said, he sought to um, depoliticize this investigation. Obviously, career professionals are doing it and to have a special counsel uh, overseeing it. Uh, but, you know, the right wing never fails. Up is down and down is up. Uh, the effort to uh, depoliticize, they are, they're now criticizing as somehow a political measure. So, um, you know, the effort to uh, segregate the investigation from the attorney general himself is in the eye of the beholder. And of course, the former president is saying he won't partake as if, you know, it's a it's a slice of pizza. I mean, it's not up to him. He is being investigated mm -hmm. uh, for his offenses and we'll see what they find. You sit on the Judiciary Committee. You just heard Rod Rosenstein say that he thinks the U.S. attorney in Delaware is sufficient in terms of being able to independently decide on what to do with Hunter Biden and that case. Um, I wonder if you agree with that or if you think your Republican colleagues are right to ask for a special counsel to deal with the current president's son. Well, I don't know anything about that case. Uh, certainly in the case of... But you have oversight uh, the, of the Justice Department. Yes. Yes. But we don't, uh, you know, I serve with Mike Pence on the Judiciary Committee. We don't oversee and interfere with individual investigations and cases that would be improper mm -hmm. in terms of oversight um you know if if the president's son has committed offenses then uh you know there'll be a judgment on whether to prosecute or not and that's the rule of law just as uh the rule of law applies to the former president people in this country have to adhere to the law and uh, you know if if you don't if you commit an offense and the facts are there then there'll be a prosecution. And that's mm -hmm. what, it, what it's about, living in a country where the rule of law, not just politics, uh, uh, leads us. Right. That's about our democratic republic. Well, the, the issue of what to do with Hunter Biden will come before your committee as the chair, incoming no. chair of it has said, along with the head of oversight, well, they want to lead investigations. Right. So There's nothing for us. There's no role for the legislative body in a prosecution. No, understood. A, but are you prepared as Democrats for this knife fight? Well, I mean, we're going to be there. And uh, the incoming Judiciary Committee chair has a history of uh, playing a mm -hmm. little fast and loose with the truth. Uh, we're aware of that. 
and okay. we'll be there uh, as truth sayers. We will be watching. Congresswoman, thank you. Face the Nation will be back in a minute. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. And it needs to say, I'm a thoughtful person. And I appreciate you. And I know exactly what you like. All at the same time. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life, like the pickleballer, the jazz fan, the zen seeker, the artist, or the pasta lover. From 90s nostalgia and mixology to reality TV and gaming, there's something for everyone on Etsy. A gifting moment is always around the corner, whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, or even just a day to say thank you. Gift Mode on Etsy has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Gift easy with Gift Mode on Etsy. This episode is brought to you in part by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like The Guest List by Lucy Foley. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Welcome back to Face the Nation. We also spoke with former Vice President Pence about the former president's entrance into the 24 presidential campaign and the prospects for his own run. I look forward to being involved in the process in some way. You know, whether we are in the debate uh, as a candidate uh, or in the debate simply as an active Republican. Um, I look forward to getting behind the Republican cause and supporting candidates around the country as well as our nominee to get this country turned back to the policies that will make us strong and prosperous again. Is it, that sounds like you'd prefer he's not the nominee, but you didn't say no. Well, I, I just think there'll be better choices. Mm -hmm. I think now calls for a different time. I think now, I think the American people will want to see us move forward. You talk about moving forward. Um, the idea of relitigating the 2020 election continues to circulate, as you know that, uh, amongst members of your party. Do you think that continuing to push these claims, as the former president does, is a direct threat? The 2020 election was not stolen. Uh, we have a process in this country where states conduct elections. Uh, Questions of irregularities or fraud are then adjudicated in the courts. The states then certify electoral votes. And as we did on January 6th. But I do think there's been far too much talk uh, questioning the integrity of our elections. According to a CBS tally, there are going to be 156 members of Congress that will be sworn in in January who continue to raise questions about the validity of the 2020 election. That's more than back in 2020. Um, isn't that a risk? Doesn't the party need to stop that? There's a First Amendment in this country that people can hold the opinions that they hold, even if I disagree with them. But I have every confidence that the new Republican leadership in the Congress, the new Republican majority, when Nancy Pelosi hands the gavel, to Kevin McCarthy, is going to draw the lessons from the midterm campaign, which for me uh, give evidence of the fact that, um, that the American people want the Republican Party and frankly all of our leaders to be focused on the future. Mm -hmm. Did it surprise you then that Republicans didn't end up with a, a larger margin? Uh, I, I was surprised. I was disappointed um, uh, at the outcome of the election. As you look around, what happened on election day, candidates that were focused on the future, candidates that were focused on the issues that the American people are focused on, uh, did quite well. You're very proud of the Supreme Court justices put on the court who just recently struck down Roe versus Wade. Mm -hmm. 
Do you think the decision on abortion access should stay in the states or should there be a national law banning it? For very early on in my public career, I, I was determined to be a champion for life. I just always purposed to advance the sanctity of life. I, and I always believed that Roe v. Wade would be sent to the ash heap of history. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's interesting that Ruth Bader Ginsburg even said, who uh, uh, was one of the great Supreme Court justices, well, she questioned the, the legal basis. She not questioned being the legal foundation enough. of but, it, and, uh, what, and she was right. But, but, is, but does what you're talking about, the moral imperative, yes. does that trump states' rights? Well, the Dobbs decision really gave the country a new beginning for life. And it did return the question of abortion to the states and the American people. Many alarmists on the American left in the beginning spoke about it banning abortion and taking away the right. And actually, I think most Americans figured out pretty quickly that, uh, in fact, uh, this question that bears so deeply on the, the life of the nation had simply been returned to the people and their so elected no representatives. Bank. For my part, I, I will tell you that I will always support efforts um, to strengthen protections for the unborn. I think it's most likely that it will be resolved at the state level, but uh, the 15-week legislation in the Congress, had I been a member of Congress, I, I would have supported. Because That's I think not too it actually, liberal for you because it would allow access up to 15 weeks of pregnancy. Well, That's where the majority of abortions are performed. I would have supported it as a beginning. The Rubio-Graham bill, the 15 weeks you're talking about, also has exceptions for life of the mother after the 15 weeks. I, I supported those exceptions during my you public did. career. But, Margaret, I do believe it's more likely this is going to be resolved at the state level. It may take as long to restore the sanctity of life to the center of American law in all 50 states as it did to overturn Roe versus Wade. But uh, people that know me and, and my family know that uh, so long as uh, uh, we live, we'll, uh, we'll seek to be about the business of life in this country and, and doing our part to support I was, sanctity of life. I was interested to read that you and your wife, Karen, um, underwent IVF therapy which is a lot to go through. Um, And there are people who are concerned that if you start with abortion access restrictions, that it will also lead to restrictions on IVF treatment. Mm. Um, If you believe life begins at conception, you can make that argument. Should it be protected as a right? Oh, Karen and I struggled for more than five years with unexplained infertility. And um, in fact, I'll never forget the day that... um, uh, I called home, uh, driving off to a work appointment, and Karen answered the phone and said, Happy Father's Day. And um, our son would come along, then a daughter, then another daughter, all within three years. And we were busy but joyful. But in the midst of all of that, we, we also received word that we had, we had made the list for an adoption uh, mm-hmm. for a young woman with an unexpected pregnancy. But we wanted to find out if uh, the second family on the list was clinically infertile. And when we did, we stepped aside, not wanting to prevent them from having the joy of a little one in their home. But I fully support uh, fertility treatments, and I think they deserve the protection of the law. What about same-sex marriage? A number of Republicans are getting on board federal protections for it. Do you believe that you need to consider that when you talk about compassion? Well, as a, as a Bible-believing Christian, I'll always hold the view that marriage is between one man and one woman. I think it was ordained by God, and uh, that'll always be my values. Um, but the Supreme Court of the United States has ruled on this uh, in the Oberfell case. Mm-hmm. And, um, so you, know, you don't think can, a federal law is needed we like can, a number of Republicans We can disagree now. with Supreme Court decisions, but we can't disobey them. I respect the pronouncements of the court. Uh, And I actually think it's just as important as we go forward as a nation that we make it clear that we don't believe in discrimination against anyone because of who they are, who they love, or what they believe. But at the same time, I I think we need to make sure that we protect the religious freedom of every American that's enshrined in the Constitution, the ability to live, to work, to worship Mm -hmm. in a manner according to the dictates of your conscience. Our full interview can be seen on our website at facethenation.com and on our YouTube page. We'll be right back.
Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This weekend, there is uncertainty about Twitter's future under its new owner, Elon Musk. For more, we are joined by tech journalist Kara Swisher, host of On with Kara Swisher, and from London, Scott Galloway, who is her co-host on the podcast Pivot and also a professor at NYU. It's good to have you both here. Um, big weekend. Yes. Uh, last night, Elon Musk, Kara, mm-hmm. put Donald Trump, the former president, back on Twitter. Yep. Uh, he had been suspended after January 6th. Permanently. He, and he went and he founded his own social media company, mm-hmm. Truth Social. And according to filings, he has a six-hour exclusive. He can only post there, not on Twitter. Yeah. So what is lifting the ban on his use of Twitter actually do? Nothing. I mean, he's been posting, people have been posting his, his truths, I think that's what they're called, um, on Twitter already, and it gets out anyway. So he has, you know, he's got these contractual obligations to this company that is not doing great. Um, and I think he can't resist, and he'll probably go full Twitter at some point. Um, but it, it, I don't think it makes any difference. Plus, he's the former president, so it doesn't quite hit quite as hard. Um, so I think the juice is a little bit out of his power on that platform. We'll see. Well, he's also, Scott, a, a presidential candidate, as we learned just a few days ago. He was kicked off of Facebook, Instagram, YouTube after January 6th. Do you think this this opens the floodgates, or is this just a gimmick by Elon Musk t- for PR? I think it's mostly the latter. I think if, if Elon's out of the news for more than 48 hours, he'll decide to kick him off again. Uh, he said that the people had spoken in Latin. Uh, I found that this poll... You know, Elon Musk polls on Twitter are more for support than illumination. He ran a similar poll to see whether or not he should sell Tesla stock, and it it ended up he'd already filed to sell those shares. So I think these polls are mostly a gimmick, and I would argue the people haven't spoken. The GRU has spoken. These uh, Twitter Russian has become, intelligence, you mean? Hundred percent. Twitter has become a playground for bad actors and fake bots. This poll is meaningless. This decision is meaningless. But you had predicted earlier that Twitter could collapse. Um, just we've seen thousands of employees either get fired or walk off the job. Do you do you stand by that? Well, Twitter will survive. And even if it doesn't, let's keep in mind, it's not a national treasure. We would all be just fine if Twitter went away. But I think when you see this sort of wholesale firing in the way in which he's gone about firing that creates this type of resentment, I easily see the site going down. I, I think we should do a head of lettuce test versus when the site goes down. <laughs> What we're not talking about is the knock-on effects at Tesla. You know, when you buy a Tesla, you're buying a pair of Air Jordans. You're associating directly with an individual, and no individual, maybe with the exception of Trump or Putin, has eroded more of their goodwill and brand equity than Elon Musk. And then you go to SpaceX, where everyone who works for the government, and this is a government contractor, has a responsibility determination form they have to fill out. Mm -hmm. And I think he's antagonized enough officials that we're going to start seeing more scrutiny on SpaceX contracts. Well, I mean, there was already talk for national security purposes yeah. to review that because of foreign ownership. Kara, for, for users mm-hmm. at home, what does this actually mean? Like, what should we do to protect ourselves? Is there anything well, to protect they, ourselves you know, against? Collapsing. It, Twitter used to go down all the time with a fail whale. It was very common. And they're, you're going to see more of that. I'm already seeing issues on the platform because of fewer people. And that's like you can't download your archive very easily. If you, if you sign off and you have two-factor authentication, good luck getting on and stuff like that. You're going to see around the edges. There may be, the problem is if he starts pushing out big changes, you're going to see problems. If he starts doing lots of things, you're going to see problems. If one coder makes a mistake, you could see problems. And that's what it is. What everyone's going to do, Margaret, I know it's hard for us media people and politicians to understand, mm-hmm. but it's not very big anywhere else. Um, it's a very small service compared to the Facebooks, the Instagrams, and the TikToks. 
of the world. And so I think it's not going to matter to most people. It's going to matter to the chattering class who enjoys dunking on each other throughout the day, essentially. Well, I mean, it has become, in some ways, a newswire, almost, for, yes. for government announcements, mm-hmm. things like that. Yeah. Um, Scott, I also want to ask you about uh, this stunning fall we saw this week of, of the founder of FTX, this cryptocurrency exchange, 30-year-old billionaire Sam Bankman-Fried, top Democratic donor. He's known in this town. Justice Department, SEC, CFTC are all now investigating. What exactly happened here? Well, on a very broad level, we don't, as a species, we can't help but to worship people. And in the U.S., we've decided to worship tech billionaires. And they don't fall under the same scrutiny, including a 30-year-old MIT graduate who we're all hoping is kind of the next Jesus and doesn't need a board of directors or doesn't need any sort of regulatory scrutiny. And as a result, in about 24 hours, you have the immolation of $34 billion in capital. And that has literally taken a medium-sized city, and everyone in that city on Tuesday has... T- $10,000, and the next day they have zero. So this will bring in warranted scrutiny. It's more spectacle than significant because the entire crypto market now is $800 billion, and Amazon has shed over a trillion dollars. And when the whole FTX debacle was unwinding, the markets were actually up. So it makes for interesting news. Mm-hmm. And unlike the great financial recession where we saw huge damage to the economy and no one go to jail, I think this is going to be the opposite. I don't think it's going to have a very big impact on the economy, but I think you're going to see some perp walks here. Some arrests. I mean, the Treasury Secretary was asked by our Nancy Cordes um, about this, and she said the absence of appropriate supervision and regulation of digital assets contributed to the collapse. I mean, that's saying... Essentially, we were asleep at the wheel as the well, U.S. government. this is early, and they, they, they haven't done much regulation on the regular Internet, and that's 20 years hence, essentially. And so they were just starting to come up with ideas between the SEC and the CTFC of how to regulate all this stuff. And Bankman-Fried was part of it. He was consulted quite a bit, and a lot of people were. And, so, and he was calling for regulation, if you recall, um, which is somewhat ironic. But there hadn't, they hadn't figured out how to deal with this very new and sort of explosive new financial instrument. Mm-hmm. And I think that's more the problem is Washington moves at a, a glacial pace around these things. They were moving faster than they have in other areas, but they certainly hadn't figured it out. But ultimately, this is going to be, you know, some sort of fraud case or something like that. And I agree with Scott. Someone's going to jail. Scott, there are also layoffs, not just at Twitter, but we saw some at Facebook. We saw job cuts mm-hmm. at Amazon. You've called this a Patagonia vest recession. What does that mean exactly? Well, most recessions are either labeled white or blue collar, meaning that they typically impact one cohort more than the other, either executives, white collar or blue collar, sort of the working class. This is the Patagonia vest recession, and that is we're going to see more people laid off in the growthy part of our economy that has sort of been the gift that keeps on giving for 13 years. But again, Margaret, I think this is more noise than news because 99.99% of the people on the planet would pray to be a recently laid off person from Meta or Google. If you've been recently laid off from one of these firms, it means that you probably went to an elite school. You live in a city where the growth prospects or the economy is growing like crazy. And you are your biggest problem is not going to be what to do, but what not to do. So sort of what if you're an H-1B visa recipient and you get sent back home suddenly? Fair point. I mean, you saw that picture. You saw that picture from Twitter. I mean, Elon put some another Mm -hmm. performative photo up. Um, of them doing coding. I'm not sure what they were doing. But there were people there that were clearly from other countries. And so they are stuck there. They are kind of, they can't leave. And I think that's one of the issues you're going to have for all these people is where do they go? A lot of companies are taking care of it. I think Facebook was one of them Mm -hmm. um, or Meta was doing that. So they'll try to figure that out. But Scott's 100% right. These are people who have lots of options and there will be more jobs for them um, comparatively. And uh, I will note that Scott does himself have a Patagonia vest and he's doing just fine. So. Never. Yes, you do. Never. I've seen it. All right. Next time you got to wear it, Scott. Thank you. Good to, to see you. Scott's joining us there from London. And Kara, Thank you. good to have you here in studio. We'll be back with the mayor-elect of Los Angeles, Karen Bass. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. When you choose Organic Valley, not only will you be enjoying great tasting dairy, you'll help to save over 1,600 small organic family farms 
who are protecting over 400,000 acres of organic farmland and all the plants and animals that call it home. This is dairy you can feel good about. It's great tasting, high-quality organic dairy, ethically sourced from small organic family farms. To find Organic Valley Dairy near you, visit ov.coop. That's ov.coop. We go now to Democratic Congresswoman Karen Bass, who made history last week when she became the first woman and the first black woman to be elected mayor of Los Angeles. Good morning to you. Good morning. Um, You are going to be sworn in as mayor of L.A. December the 12th. Um, You've got a lot of work cut out for you. Um, And I know you you campaigned hard on the you did. You campaigned hard on the issue of crime and homelessness. And I want to get right into that. Homicides up 14 percent from two years ago. Robberies up almost 16 percent in L.A. over that same time. Do you plan to keep the current police chief? Um, Yes, there's no um, desire on my part to remove the current police chief. You know, we have a crisis in our city with homelessness as well. 40,000 people are asleep in tents uh, all throughout our city and four or five of them pass away every morning. And so we have multiple crises right now. And so it's my intent on day one to address that issue. And it's my understanding that the chief of police's uh, contract is up at the end of next year. So you could revisit it at that time, in other words. Um, but I, Right. I revisit that along with many other general managers as well. Yeah. When I ask about your approach to policing, I'm mindful that you're in a pretty unique position because you worked on this in Congress um, in putting forward the uh, George Floyd Policing Act. Um, in your public safety plan for L.A., you talk about hiring more officers, And I know in the past you've said that defund the police was one of the worst slogans ever. How do you bring all that to changing policing in L.A.? What specifically do you do that's different? Well, first of all, I think what's most important about police reform, whether we're talking in Los Angeles or any place else, is accountability and transparency. Those are two things that are critical. In terms of hiring police officers, we've had several hundred police officers retire or move on for other reasons. And what I am proposing is that we replace the ones that the city has allotted for. In other words, bringing the police department up to its full force that is budgeted. The other thing is, is that in many communities, they want to see an increased police presence. And so I am calling for moving officers off of administrative duty and putting them on the streets. That's the way we can hire them as soon as possible. But in addition to that, I believe in obviously stopping crime when it occurs, but doubling down and tripling down in communities where crime prevention strategies and different approaches are required. And I've worked on this for a number of years. And so I want to fully fund programs Mm -hmm. to prevent crime, to intervene, especially with young people. And one of the things that our current chief of police said is that he accounted for a spike in crime, especially post restrictions of the pandemic, because many of the crime prevention programs shut down due to Mm -hmm. COVID. Um, You disclosed back in September that that you yourself uh, were a victim of burglary at your home and you had two guns stolen at that time. And I wonder, did you have those guns because you felt unsafe in your own home? And did you go out and purchase new weapons? (laughs) I have not purchased new weapons. I had two handguns. I had owned them for a very, very, very long time. And uh, I certainly believe in an individual's right to uh, legally possess guns and properly store them. Mine were legally uh, purchased and properly stored. Mm -hmm. But you wouldn't encourage people to feel that they have to arm themselves to defend their own homes. I, I certainly hope. And, you know, one of the things that happened in the pandemic, not just in Los Angeles, but all across the country, was an increase in gun purchasing. Yeah. One of the reasons why we've had an increase in uh, crime in Los Angeles is because of ghost guns. And ghost guns absolutely need to be cracked down on. And that's something that uh, will be a focus of mine as well. What is the long term solution to the homelessness and housing crisis? Because housing affordability is pretty big problem in Los Angeles. 
absolutely right. Los Angeles has become unaffordable. You have to have a comprehensive approach. There's no magic bullet. So first and foremost, you have to prevent people from falling into homelessness, and clearly affordability is key to that. But you know, people are on the streets for a variety of issues, and you have to address why they're there. Is it substance abuse? Is it mental illness? Is it just straight up affordability? We have people who are intense who actually work full time. We have thousands of children who are intense, some with mothers who fled domestic violence, some who are teenagers who aged out of foster care, some people who were formerly incarcerated uh, because they are not able to find housing are intense. Mm -hmm. So we have to have a comprehensive approach and address the reasons why people were unhoused. But first and foremost, we have to get people off the streets. People are literally dying on the streets in Los Angeles, and this has got to stop. Well, we will be watching, uh, Mayor-elect, uh, how you do just that. It's a, it's a tall order. Thank you for joining us this morning. And we will be right back. That's it for us today. Thank you all for watching. Until next week. For Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were former Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein, Democratic Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren of California, former Vice President Mike Pence, tech podcast hosts, Kara Swisher and Scott Galloway, and Karen Bass, the mayor-elect of Los Angeles. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Shelley Schwartz. Face the Nation originates in CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our CBS News streaming network on Sundays at 1.30, 4, 10 p.m. Eastern, and again at 4 a.m. the next morning. And it's available through our apps, CBS News and Paramount+. Plus. The early 2000s was a breeding ground for bad reality competition series. From shows like Kid Nation, CBS's weird Lord of the Flies-style social experiment that took 40 kids to live by themselves in a ghost town, to The Swan, a horrifying concept where women spent months undergoing a physical transformation and then were made to compete in a beauty pageant. Hi, I'm Misha Brown, and I'm the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each episode, comedians join me to chronicle one of the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? Recently on The Big Flop, we looked at the reality TV show, The Swan. The problem, this dream opportunity quickly became a viewing nightmare. They were isolated for weeks, berated, operated on, and then were ranked by a panel of judges. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.